Thank you, Kelly. I'm reading today from 1 Peter, starting at chapter 3, verse 8, which can be found on page 1846 of the Church Bibles. And he's on the screen next to me. Uh, this continues a section where um, Peter's been talking about how to live as Christians, which, of course, is to reflect uh, the life of Jesus. So 1 Peter 3 from verse 8, going through to 4 verse 11. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolises baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, by the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is seated at the right hand, at God's right hand, sorry, with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, 
so that they may be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power for ever and ever. Amen. Thanks very much, Jeff. Um, and I don't know if uh, you've been like me at some point, having to try and explain to someone uh, what kind of church we are at Tonsley. Um, you might be having a conversation with someone and the topic of church comes up and they ask you, well, what's your church like? Uh, it can be hard uh, to know what the person is asking, uh, what kind of actual question they have there. Are they asking about our style or you know, our theology? Do they want to know about our building or our denomination or our history? How many people go? Uh, feels like there are millions of ways you could describe what kind of church we are. Like, for instance, we found out today we're a church with a water feature, uh, which is nice. Um, the security guards are working on how to turn it off again for us. Uh, apparently, it's a cooling device, uh, so if you want to get cool, you can move back there. If you find the need to go to the toilet quite a lot through the sermon with that uh, white noise, it's totally fine, I understand. Or if you want a quick baptism after service, uh, come let me know. There's lots of ways you can describe the kind of church we are, isn't there? Uh, we're a new church, we're family-friendly, we're not very traditional, uh, we're robust and hardy during winter. Uh, more importantly, I suppose, we, we could describe ourselves saying we love Jesus, uh, we're captured by God's grace, we love the Bible, and we're on mission together. There's all sorts of ways we could kind of unpack all that, but there's all kinds of ways we can describe our church, isn't there? Uh, for the next little while, we're going to be exploring how the Apostle Peter sets the agenda for the kind of church we are to be. Uh, that's what Peter is on about in this passage uh, that Jeff just read for us. It might be hard to see at first in, in all the details here, and I don't think he actually mentions the word church once, but this is really a passage about how we are to conduct ourselves as God's people. Uh, there is a lot in the passage. It's a big one. Uh, and trying to get through this, uh, this entire passage in one sermon, I'll admit, is very ambitious, um, I'd probably normally turn this section to about three different sermons. Uh, it's just that with Christmas around the corner and we're kind of motoring through the rest of 1 Peter from here. Uh, so instead of three sermons on the passage, I thought today I'd just preach a sermon that's three times longer. Uh, does that sound okay? Yeah? No, maybe not. Uh, first, I want to uh, help us get our bearings in this letter. And I think that'll help us pick out the big threads and the main ideas I'm sort of keen for us to look at closely as we go. Uh, a few weeks ago, we looked in chapter 2, and we saw how Peter describes God's people as a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Now, how are we a priesthood? What, is, what does that mean? Uh, you might remember some of the things we uh, covered on that week, but when we think about the Old Testament and what the priests of Israel were doing, they had plenty of duties, lots of things to do. But a huge part of their, their role and their identity as priests uh, was to represent God to the people. They represent God's presence, his blessing, his holiness. Uh, priests effectively were mediators. 
They were standing in between God and the nation, offering sacrifice, uh, leading the people in worship, and speaking God's words to the people. They're representing God to the people. It's true, a priest also represented uh, the people to God, uh, that is, a representative of the people before God, and we'll pick that idea up on another day. Today, though, I want to pick up the idea that we as priests, as God's church, we have that role as a royal priesthood. We represent God to the world around us. That's what we're doing as a priesthood. Through us, the world gets to see what God is like, they get to hear his words, and we try and lead others in praise and worship of him. Over the last three weeks, we've seen how that's played out in different parts of our lives, especially our individual lives, I suppose, uh, with Paul Harrington. Uh, if you've missed any of those, uh, those last three weeks, you will find it well worth your time to catch up, uh, especially on Q&A last week. I think we set a new world record for the longest Q&A time in a church. Uh, our ministry team in the kids' area knew all about that last week. Very thankful for you guys. Uh, it was a great, a great three weeks with Paul, covering how we live our lives in a way that brings honour and glory to God. Each week with Paul, we started with a big idea in chapter 2, verse 11 to 12, and it'll be up on the screen for us now. And this is a big idea again for us today. The section we're in, this is what Peter's really just unpacking for us. Dear friends, verse 11, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, that's kind of the job description of the royal priesthood. Living such good lives as we share the gospel uh, that those around us might put their trust in Jesus and join us in glorifying God. Uh, Over the last three weeks, we've seen how living the good life looks in relation to our governing authorities, uh, in our workplaces and in our households. Today, in the passage we're looking at, Peter shows us how to relate to each other, how to be a church. Now, remembering, uh, as we do this, we are representing God to the world around us. So our relationships, our involvement in church life, they are actually all about God's glory, about reflecting him well to those around us. And surely there is nothing more important than God's glory. It makes me think, actually, that we want to think carefully about this as a church. Uh, God's glory is so important, we can't just afford to be polite and unthoughtful in the way we come to church and relate to people. We want to be thinking, how are we going to be caring for each other and loving each other as we ought? So, how do we, as God's royal priesthood, how do we go about bringing God's glory as his church? So, from chapter 3, verse 8, where we started. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Now, that sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? Just love each other. Be humble. uh, Get on with each other. It doesn't actually sound that hard, does it? Uh, It doesn't sound hard, but it can be. Uh, We've only been going here for about nine months at Tonsley. Uh, It's not that long. It's not that long. Um, In fact, it's possible we don't actually know each other quite well enough yet to really be getting on each other's nerves. Uh, That may still come. My assumption is, though, that we all have our own baggage, our own challenges... And most of all, we, own, we have our own uh, sinful hearts and desires. It makes me think at some point, we might find ourselves not feeling particularly compassionate uh, towards someone else here, especially if we found they haven't been very compassionate to us in our struggles. We might find it very hard to be sympathetic when someone's going through hardship because, again, they might have been like, rude to us. What about the phrase, be like-minded? it's pretty hard to agree on uh, lots of things. Like, are we supposed to agree on which football team is the best? Is that what he's saying here? 
And so as you start trying to unpack this, you realise it's not so straightforward working out how to do this day-to-day, week-to-week, being people who need a lot of help. I think it's easy enough to skip over verse 8 as a kind of a nice life advice kind of thing, but the health of church relationships, they really do matter, don't they? Because they're about the glory of God. So just a moment for a bit of a heart check. Um, Is that us? Is that you at the moment? As you came to be with your brothers and sisters this morning, did you come seeking to love? So assuming you'll be compassionate and sympathetic to others. Well, perhaps for some, there may be some, some sort of friction somewhere that we might want to deal with. Picking up just uh, one, uh, one word here, Australians, and especially Christians in Australia, I think we have a very strange relationship with humility. Um, I think, you know, use the word humility, like what does that mean? I sometimes think, well, sorry, it seems that we corporately think about humility, uh, it's pretending uh, that we're bad at things. Being humble is kind of pretending, oh, I'm not very good at that, no. You know, if someone tells you you've done something well, like you've made a great cake for morning tea or whatever, um, we say, oh, no, 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 it's, it's just a little recipe I found online, it's nothing. Culturally, we cannot say, yeah, thanks, I am really good at baking, I nailed it. Even if that's what you're thinking, even if that's, what that's, even if that's true. We, we put in this kind of facade that oh, I'm not very good at it, don't worry, it's a little thing. But actually, that's, that's our culture. That's not really what humility is about, I don't think, at its heart. Being humble in our relationships is actually just not, you know, not thinking about or speaking about ourselves as if we're small or insignificant. Humility seems to be just not thinking that much about ourselves at all. Humility seems to be just not thinking much about me, but actually about the other person. I think true humility means we come along to church or getting along to our growth groups, uh, not because it's good for me, not because it's a great time. I mean, hopefully it's not a terrible time. But the point is, when we're thinking first, not, well, I hope this is a good use of my time this morning, but instead thinking first, well, how can I come and serve others today? How can I come and love my growth group? I think that's, if that's the, our approach to these things, that's a humble approach and we'll go away having never felt like we've wasted our time. Even if the sermon wasn't amazing, uh, even if the songs weren't our favourite or whatever, because the point is we're not here for ourselves, we're here for each other. And ironically, that's where we find our true blessing, as we're here to serve. Now, if you're getting a bit worried, we've been going for quite a few minutes here, and I'm only uh, in the first verse. Don't worry. Uh, let's look at the next one, and we'll start moving a bit quicker through this long passage. Verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil, or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. It seems that Peter still has church relationships in mind here, actually. Uh, he is making a bit of a shift, though, to include how we relate to non-believers, and he'll unpack that more in a moment. But within the people of God, the point here is we are committed to grace with each other, aren't we? We're committed to grace. Uh, when we're wronged, not sort of silently harbouring resentments or, uh, or something like that, but actively seeking to bless the person who has wronged us, wanting the best for someone who's wronged us. Now, again, that might sound fine in theory uh, until you're insulted, until you're on the wrong end of the evil act. That's when it's very hard. Now, I've played a lot of soccer in my life. Um, Topical, I know. Uh, I've played a lot of soccer, or what the more cultured among us would call football. Uh, Football, as as known around the world. And and I should say, if you feel insulted by that comment, um, you've just been told to show grace to me, so uh, we can move on. For the... um, my experience playing soccer, if someone laid a bad tackle on me, you know, flying in with their full body weight, uh, sticking a stud from their boot into my knee or my ankle, 
My first response wasn't usually, oh, you okay there? Look, I hope you're having a fun game. Let's get on with it. My first response was usually looking for an opportunity to get even. It's a reflex often when that sort of thing happens. And I imagine that for most of us, our reflex is exactly the same in the church setting. You know, I hope you're not getting tackled uh, here at church. But if it's someone who wrongs us, and they should know better, it's so hard. And so it's worth just knowing that grace is difficult to manufacture on our own steam. We're being told to show grace, but how do we do that? I think it's very important, and we'll come back to it in a moment, because we do need to keep growing in this, I think. Uh, it's maybe worth pointing out there, here that um, even Peter, the author of this letter, he actually sucked at this at one time. Peter, the very man who'd spent three years following Jesus, listening to Jesus teach again and again about grace, about turning the other cheek, after being trained the best possible discipleship school of all time, after three years, do you remember what happens when Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane? What does Peter do? You remember? Peter grabs a sword and chops off some random guy's ear. He's not exactly showing blessing at that point, is he? Left to our own devices, our reflex probably isn't to repay evil with blessing. Be traced through Peter's life and you realise he changes. Something big changes for Peter. You can take your notes, Acts 4 and 5, you'll see Peter is arrested later in life a couple of times. Be super relaxed about it. Peter, after witnessing the death and resurrection of Jesus, fundamentally changed in how he shows grace to others. Or, where we started in chapter 2, as Peter puts it, Peter was able to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against the soul. The sinful desire to get even, to bring revenge, it's a strong one. It's almost an impulse sometimes. But for the glory of God, we need to keep growing in our instincts to show grace. Now, part of the motivation to, um, to abstain from getting evil uh, there is more to it, but part of the motivation for showing grace, Peter outlines as he quotes in verses 10 to 12 from Psalm 34. Part of the motivation for doing this, for showing grace, is as we do that, as we show grace and kindness to others, we find out this is the good life. This is the kind of life God designed us to live, showing grace and kindness. And as we do that, as we do what God has asked us to do, we're able to enjoy being blessed by the God who created us, enjoying the good life. The promises here from God himself in verse 12 that we actually have his attention in those moments. He is seeking to answer our prayers as we're walking in his ways. There is great blessing for us as we keep actively growing in the way we show grace and kindness to each other. Now and into eternity, God has set many blessings before us. Now how we relate to each other um, says volumes about God's grace to us and we'll come back to that in a second. But from verse 13 onwards, Paul does shift for... Uh, sorry, Peter shifts focus uh, from doing good amongst ourselves to doing good, uh, doing what is right in the world around us. So from verse 13 onwards here in chapter 3, the focus becomes doing good in the world around us. Verse 13, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Now, it's a, a fair rhetorical question. He's suggesting, I think, that most of the time the answer was no one. No one's going to hurt you for doing the, wrong, uh, doing the right things. Normally, that's that's true, isn't it? Like kindness and charity and courage. Uh, if we're doing those you know, things with those sorts of nature, we are applauded by the world, and rightly so. But then Peter continues, doesn't he, in verse 14, assuming that actually sometimes there will be people uh, who want to harm you for doing good. We will suffer sometimes for doing good. That's the assumption that he carries on from verse 14. And fair enough. 
Because in the first century, as Peter wrote this, to the people he's writing to, they were experiencing very real costs for following Jesus. Many would have been cut off from their family, uh, been cut out from community. If you were Jewish, you were excluded from the synagogue. You know, you're one point of cultural and uh, relational connection often during the week. Some Christians were barred from work opportunities. At very least, it would have been, I think, very hard to get ahead in the business world if you refused to bow the knee to the Roman emperor. Very difficult. Now, in Australia, of course, we can uh, feel some of those same cultural currents, can't we? And I think most of us aren't used to it here in Australia, actually suffering for our allegiance to Jesus. It's a newish kind of thing for our generation. The thought of missing job opportunities, uh, social exclusion to some degree, perhaps to an extreme degree at points, uh, relationship breakdown with people we love for the sake of following Jesus. Uh, we're aware these things are, um, yeah, are real pressures. Just want to help us remember, though, we can assume verse 13 most of the time. Most of the time... Doing good things, helping people, being generous, showing compassion and mercy and grace, most of the time, even in with strong cultural currency in Australia, those things are still applauded. It's not actually as bad as we sometimes make it out to be in our own heads. After all, the average person on the street in Australia is not really that hostile about Christianity. Uh, the average Australian, as it turns out, with good data behind it, the average Australian would probably happily come to church if they were invited by a family member or a friend. Even still, uh, we may find ourselves a target uh, for sharing our faith, for sharing the gospel with someone. We might find ourselves being a target uh, for being known in the Christian workplace uh, as the one who holds the Bible's teaching on sexual ethics. Or if we jump down to chapter 4 here, see how that sort of starts, it might be that we're not, um, it's not what we believe that makes us a target, it's what we don't do. Uh, that is, we're not joining in with wild and reckless living, it can kind of mark us out, perhaps making others feel awkward about our presence uh, in sports clubs, in the workplace, at uni. As we're not jumping in with reckless living, we're noted as different and therefore a target of ridicule. This happens when we refuse to chase after th- cheap thrills and instead try and stay obedient to Jesus. In those kind of moments, and some of you will know this uh, too well, I suppose... But in those situations where we're targeted for our beliefs or our behaviour, see what Peter says in verse 14. We are blessed. We are blessed. Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. What's he saying? Well, it seems that not only do we have a great eternal inheritance to look forward to, there's great blessing there, eternal blessing that's secure. Nothing can take that away from us. But also, we are blessed as we walk God's way. We don't have to wonder if we're doing something wrong because we suffer. Not at all. We know that we're walking with God and he is very much with us. He's giving us courage. He's giving us strength. And he's shaping us to be more and more like Jesus, which is the greatest blessing I can imagine. Perhaps the greatest blessing here that Peter mentions, though, is not needing to fear. Not needing to fear. Can you imagine that? A life of fearlessness. Threats don't bother you, nothing. He's saying, yeah, that's, that's true. You don't need to fear because God really is in control of everything. As we feel cultural currents moving against us, hear the Apostle Peter say, don't fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. That's our pathway here. Knowing that Christ is, knowing full well that Christ is the all-powerful, all-conquering Lord. He is the boss of everything. Jesus is the Lord who will judge the living 
and the dead, and he will bring justice for us, for all his people. Now again, we can look at Peter's own life and realise he didn't model this particularly well himself as a disciple, uh, doing good uh, even though he suffers. Famously, as Jesus is on trial, Peter denies him three times. He was scared. Peter was fearing for his own life, so he denied Jesus. But again, like him cutting off someone's ear, we realise as he's writing this letter much later, he has fundamentally changed in how he sees the world. He's not impulsively lashing out to people who might hurt him. He's not afraid of being known to belong to Jesus. It seems to me, to me that what's changed for Peter is that he knows beyond doubt, he saw it for himself with his own two eyes, Jesus Christ is the Lord. Peter saw him. He saw the risen Jesus. He ate with him. He touched him. Peter saw Jesus ascend into heaven knowing that he's going to rule and reign the universe from there and to rule and reign over all the details of our lives and the cultural currents we swim in. We really don't need to fear with Captain Jesus at the helm. Then look from about verse 19 here in chapter 3. If we look from there down to, I think, verse 22, it's a very confusing passage. I'm just going to be honest. It's very confusing. Uh, Jesus preaching to imprisoned spirits and so on. Uh, Today I'm not going to dive into all the details here, uh, partly for the sake of time, uh, partly though because I'm not sure how much clarity I can provide. There's some things we can say for sure. But what I really want to say, the point I think Peter is making here, is that Jesus really is in charge. That's the point he seems to be making, with all those details a bit confusing. Just have a look at verse 22. Here's his conclusion. Jesus is in heaven at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Everything. Everything is under Jesus' control. Now, we could dig into the details more here, but it seems to me verse 19 to 22 is just Peter's way of showing us Jesus really is the Lord. So don't worry. We don't need to fear. He's listening to your prayers. But Peter also wants us to think about the kind of Lord that Jesus is. What kind of boss is he? How did Jesus handle himself? What did did he do? How did he treat people? We reflect on Jesus as he was arrested. He didn't kick and spit and curse the Roman guards. He could have sneered and belittled Pilate, who, let's be clear, wasn't very good at his job as governor, was he? Jesus could have made him feel very small, I'm sure. But our character matters, uh, matters before God in moments when we're attacked or put under pressure. And Jesus is the model we are to follow. It's not about trying to win an argument to make ourselves look good. Instead, verse 15 of chapter 3. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. Now, it's very important to know how to share the, uh, the reason for the hope we have, to be able to yeah, talk, our, talk our way through the details of our faith. Why do we believe what we believe? Why is it reasonable? That's important. And some of us will find it a natural thing. Others will have to work uh, far harder at it. But for all of us, we do benefit, like he says here, by being prepared, being prepared to give an answer, doing the work, thinking about it. How would I explain this to my friends? What books could I read to help me articulate this a bit better? And as a church in the coming year, that's something we'd love to work more on, giving us all a bit more uh, confidence about it, give a reason for the hope that we have. But the bigger point today is that knowing all the answers, being super prepared, even super intelligent, great with words, winning an argument, it's not the goal. It's not the goal. Being gentle and respectful, that's the goal. And that's something we can all do, no matter how much we might fluff our lines. And it's something we can all keep growing in as well, our gentleness and respect to others who don't follow Jesus. 
Our world uh, doesn't do a very good job of listening respectfully uh, to other points of view anymore, does it? I don't think we see too many examples of people asking gentle and kind questions when someone's disagreeing with them. I think if we can have those kinds of conversations, we can master being gentle and respectful, I think we'd find a lot of people really refreshed by that. But more than that, it's actually what brings God, God glory. When his people are courageously doing good and maintaining gentleness and respect to those around us, those even who oppose us. I should say at this point, though, after everything I've said, it's worth acknowledging pretty much everything I've said does sound a bit mad at the surface, doesn't it? It does sound a bit mad if you're sort of just checking these things out for the first time, uh, perhaps checking out church for the first time in a long time. Welcome. It's, it's really great you're here. But just if you run back what I've been talking about, accepting suffering... Uh, not getting even if someone insults us, missing out on great parties. Why would we do any of this? What's our motivation? That's the thing we've sort of missed so far, the motivation to turn the other cheek, as it were. Why would we do that? Well, I think the key for us today is verse 18. Peter gives us the why, why for all of this. It's very simple. It's because what Jesus did for me and for you. Verse 18, chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Jesus brought us to God. He made us right with our Creator, with our Judge. That's a great thing, being in relationship with our Creator. And if we get this point, we can get on with what Peter has been talking about. But if we don't, we don't grasp the magnitude of what Christ has done for each of us, I don't think we will be able to show grace even if we try. We can't manufacture something like that in those great difficult moments. I think we'd be like Peter before he witnessed his friend Jesus suffering in his place. Peter got to see Jesus paying the cost for his sin, bearing the the wrath for Peter's own faithlessness with his blood. Peter saw it spill out from the cross. Jesus was the righteous that Peter got to see dying for him the unrighteous, to bring Peter to God, to bring me and you to God, that we might have life with God forever. Once we know and love and understand Jesus' sacrifice for us, once that really sinks in, when we realise he didn't repay us for our evil, he blessed us instead, it really does change everything, doesn't it? We know his grace to us, and it's actually kind of madness to not then live in the same way. To know this amazing grace deep in our hearts, making us tick, it makes us want to give God all the glory. We want others to know his glory and grace as well, don't we? Well, from chapter 4 in verse 7, Peter turns the focus then back on us and our conduct uh, amongst each other as a royal priesthood again. Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Now that's a good uh, sentence to capture anyone's attention, isn't it? The end of all things is near. Pretty dramatic. The end of all things is the day when God will step into the timeline of history and wrap it all up. There will be a point when God brings salvation and judgment to a close. And that time, Peter says, is near. I don't know how many years or decades or centuries it might be, but the way the timeline of the Bible works is that from the cross and resurrection of Jesus, from that point onwards, the countdown of time has started. The time is ticking. So things won't run this way forever. We just don't know how long. 
So then, if the, if the end of all things is near, the charge is to be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. How about that? The end is coming. Response is prayer. Getting back to the question I started with, what kind of church are we? I'd love to say that we're a church who prays. We're a church who prays. I'd love to say that. I don't know if that's true at one level. I'd, I'd like to think so. But maybe it's like asking how anyone, you know, how's your personal prayer life going? I've never heard someone say, oh, I'm nailing it. I pray like a champion. I really think this is an area as a church we could grow in. Each of us can grow in, really aspiring to, to grow as God's royal priesthood in how we pray. We know that the end of all things is near, so let's pray. One very simple thing to do is perhaps keep an eye out for the next monthly prayer meeting before church. A great way to bring our, our prayers before God together. Well, verse 8 in chapter 4, we again have that charge to love each other. Here, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, I want to point out uh, what Peter's not saying at this point. Uh, he's not saying that if we just love a lot, we can sort of do whatever we want and sort of balance it out. We can be really sinful, but love a lot and it'll be fine. Uh, that's not it. That's not what he's saying. I think here he's saying, well, the assumption he's, he's built in here is that we will sin against each other. That's true. We will be rude. We will let each other down. We will be unkind. Sorry if that's going to shatter any illusions uh, for you here at, at Tonsley. But after all, putting a bunch of people, sinful people like myself, in a room together, it's going to happen at some point. We'll sin against each other. When that happens in a social club or a sports club, it usually means that there are groups, sort of groups that don't speak to each other or they're not on good terms. Uh, some people are to be avoided, so you're trying to sit over here, so you have to talk to that person. Uh, things like rumours and gossip fly around because trust breaks down. But we're not a social club. We're not a sports club. We're a church. We're shaped by God's grace, and so we have that commitment to keep loving each other. Which means when we're sinned against, relationships don't have to end. Love covers over, or I think it smooths over a relationship when there's a challenge, when there's friction. Love doesn't pay for, us, for our sin. Only Jesus' blood pays for our sin. But actually, it, love can help that relationship get through some, yeah, some challenges. As Peter continues here describing what it's like to be in the royal priesthood, what it looks like to belong to a church that's shaped by grace, I just want to say I'm really thankful that I think he's describing our church in many ways. We're, we're of course, a long way from perfect, but I think this is the sort of church we are. I'll tell you what I mean. As he urges us to have hospitality, I think, yeah, there has been a great and growing culture of hospitality at our church, inviting people into our homes and sharing our lives. There's been so many new people we've been able to welcome in to our family. Hospitality is not just having a meal necessarily. It's slightly more than that, isn't it? It's sharing a meal with someone or spending time with someone to bless them and not expecting anything out of it. As a side note, I think hospitality, caring hospitality, is a huge hole in Australian culture. It doesn't seem to happen much where people are invited into homes for a meal. And I think, yeah, we've got, I'm sure, ways to grow here, but gee, we're off to a good start as a church. There's also a lot of serving that happens here at Tonsley week in, week out. Uh, there's formal ministries that happen every week. Uh, a lot of people are taking responsibility in ministry teams to serve, to serve faithfully, to serve hard. Alongside all our ministry teams, though, there's informal serving, isn't there? There's so many things happening behind the scenes that most of us will never know about. As individuals reach out to care for and do specific things to help others in particular ways. 
Well, verse 11, I think, is a great challenge to every one of us who preaches or who teaches, uh, be it growth group leaders or youth leaders or our kids' ministry leaders. Verse 11, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Again, I'm encouraged. I I think we are a church that takes the teaching and preaching of God's word very, very seriously. I'm glad that uh, most of you are really interested, not so much in what I think, actually. I don't, I don't think you, you're here to hear my thoughts on things. You're here because you're interested in what God has to say. And the evidence of that, I think, is we preached through 1 Kings, a very obscure part of the Old Testament in many ways. We did that in the middle of the winter. Um, I can tell you that's not the best church planting strategy going around, but you kept coming. Uh, you kept coming, not to hear my thoughts on things, but because you love the Word of God. I also thank God that we're a church, uh, like at the end of verse 11, seeking God's help. We are seeking God's help as a church. We know our weaknesses, don't we? Uh, We're not pretending to be anything we're not. We simply know God's strength, and we know we can rely on Him. We can get on with starting new churches, with sharing the gospel, with loving each other. I'm really thankful to God that at our heart, I can say we are a church that cares first about God's glory. We are a church that cares about God's glory first. And I think that takes us right back to where we started today. See, as we set out to represent God to the world as a royal priesthood, the thing we must keep central to each of our lives, each of our hearts, and central to the life of our church, is that we keep caring most about God's glory, about his reputation and his praise, caring about that above everything else. As we do that, we pray, as Peter writes here, that in all things... God might be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory. To him be the power. Forever and ever. Amen.